This morning, our lesson comes from Luke chapter 17. Would you turn there in your copy of God's Word? And uh, we're going to read this, and uh, would you stand with me as we read Holy Scripture together this morning? Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village... He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Have you ever thought of yourself or described yourself as a worshiper of God? Is that language that you use to describe yourself at all? What, uh, what even do you think of when you think of a worshiper? Like, what is the mental picture that kind of pops into your head? Worshiper. I, is, it, is it something that like looks like this? Is it somebody maybe singing or praying, but somebody kind of like eyes closed, raising their hands to heaven? Is that a picture that pops into your head? If you have a chance, you can't really do it in here because we don't have great cell service, but just do a Google image search real quick for the word worshiper. And the first 50 pictures are going to be some version of that, right? It's the guy staring at the sunset on a mountaintop, you know, raising his hands. It's, it's become so ubiquitous that it's almost like a meme. It, it's almost like a caricature of what a worshiper is, and, and yet... That idea of raising your hands in worship to God is incredibly biblical. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul says to Timothy, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 1 Kings 8.22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. Psalm 134, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. We see this over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament, people raising their hands to God. But it's not the only physical posture of worship that we see in scripture. Psalm 95.6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us, um, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That idea of bowing, kneeling. Nehemiah 8, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this is giving us a picture of what a biblical posture is for worship. 
And we see this throughout the scriptures. And this picture plays right off of our text from last week, uh, which came right before this little section in uh, Luke 17 that we read this morning. Our text last week told us this, you are unworthy servants of Jesus. You are undeserving of what Jesus has done for you. And so your response to Jesus is to assume both physically and spiritually, I would say, the posture of an unworthy servant. What is the posture of an unworthy servant before the king of the universe? Well, maybe it's, it's something that kind of looks like this. It's, it's almost, almost cowering. It's lowering yourself. It's humbling yourself before the king of all things, Right? If he's truly the master, if he's truly the king, then how do you posture yourself in front of a king? You know, historically, we human beings have a pretty crummy track record when it comes to worship. Like, we are far better at defying God and worshiping ourselves than we are at actually worshiping him. From the get-go, that's been kind of our M.O., Yet, did you know that God is actually seeking people to worship him? He's actually searching for people to worship him. Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4, famously, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The hour is coming and is now here, Jesus says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father. And and this is like a recurring theme in the teaching of Jesus. This recurring theme that there are true worshipers and that there are untrue worshipers. That there are true worshipers and that there are untrue worshipers. And in today's text, as we saw, Jesus heals ten men. Ten lepers, but only one of them winds up being a worshiper. Only one of them recognizes what Jesus has done. And what did it say? He turned back and he fell on his face, worshiping in a loud voice. Look at Luke 17. A few things that I would point out. First of all, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem in this passage. Luke makes note of that on several occasions. Jesus is slowly making his way towards the cross. He's slowly journeying in that direction. And as he entered this village, these lepers stood at a distance and called out to him. And this is all, um, you know, kind of standard practice if you're a leper. Not only are you considered ceremonially unclean within Jewish religious culture, but you are required to kind of separate yourself from people, and you are required in a very loud voice to announce your comings and goings so that everybody else can get out of the way, right? So that everybody else can get away from you um, as quickly as possible. And, and just, just real quick, kind of as an aside, man, just can you imagine how isolating and lonely that must have been? I mean, these people were truly outcasts. Not only were they cast out because 
of their actual physical infirmity, but they were also cast out because the way that people thought about these things was such that they assumed that because you had leprosy, it meant you had great sin in your life. Or possibly a family member of yours had great sin in their lives. So these are folks who are truly on the fringe of society. Their only relationships are with other outcasts. And these are the ones who are crying out to Jesus from from kind of far away. Additionally, since these guys would have been considered ceremonially unclean, they would have also been barred from participation in any kind of religious activity, which for the Jews was also communal activity. I mean, this is what it looked like for the community to come together. So, so Jesus' instruction for them is to go and, and do what? Show themselves to the priest. Because if they're clean, if they no longer have leprosy, then the priests are going to be the ones who validate that, right? I'm going to go show myself to the priest, and he's going to see that the leprosy is gone. And as a result, I'm going to get the okay to like enter back into regular society, right? So not only is my life going to be changed because this physical ailment is gone, my life is going to be changed because I'm going to be allowed to be like a normal person again. I'm no longer going to be an outcast. I'm no longer going to be separated and segregated. The priests are the ones who are going to say grace over me. They got their lives back. But but amazingly, despite all of the life-changing ramifications of what Jesus did for these guys and healing them, only one turns back to worship him. Only one says, you know, I I can go show myself to the priest later, Right? First, I need to praise the one who has healed me. Now, two things. One, Luke points out that this guy who turns back was a Samaritan. He just kind of throws that in there. By the way, this guy was a Samaritan. And that's significant because the Samaritans didn't really have like the rich religious culture that the Jews had, even though many Samaritans participated in the Jewish religious culture. So what's happening here is similar to what happens in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Um, A man gets robbed and beaten up and kind of left for dead on the side of a highway. And three different guys pass by him. And the first two are Jewish religious leaders. One is a priest. The other is a Levite. And these are the guys who kind of catch a glimpse of this guy in the ditch out of the corner of their eye. And they just keep on walking. They don't stop. They don't go to see if he's okay. They don't try to help. They just keep on moving. And then the guy who actually stops is the Samaritan, right? And and part of what Jesus is throwing out there is this notion that the ones who should have known God's heart, the ones who would have a lens for like serving their neighbor in distress or helping a brother, these are the ones who act like they don't see anything. And just keep on walking. But then here's this Samaritan who hasn't necessarily come up in the same religious culture that a priest or a Levite would have come up in. Somebody who maybe doesn't understand God's heart for the oppressed in the way that a priest or a Levite might. And yet he is the one who actually stops and helps. So Jesus is trying to be kind of intentionally provocative here with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And and yet here in this real instance... What's happening? 
like the other lepers who conceivably were Jews, they don't come back. It's the one who shouldn't come back, who does come back. It's the one who would seemingly have less of a lens for worshiping God and giving God praise and honor and glory for healing. He's the one who actually returns. And again, posture, he he prostrates himself in front of Jesus. So this is significant to me. Um, Jesus isn't trying to say that Samaritans are just better people than Jews. He's trying to point out that the people who should know the heart of God, the people who should help, the people who should turn back and worship, don't in this instance. Now, here's where things get interesting. The leper turns back to worship God with a loud voice, and what does Jesus say to him? Verse 17, Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Where are the rest? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Isn't that amazing? So something, something else is seemingly happening here. I think that for the Samaritan, not only is there something physical that's going on here, there's also something spiritual that's taking place in this moment. Remember last week we said that faith is largely an issue of fidelity. Faith in many ways is answering the question, to whom are you loyal? To whom are you loyal? Who is the king that you prostrate yourself before? Who is the king that you kneel before? Who is the king that you bow before as an unworthy servant? This Samaritan is the only one out of these nine who recognize that in this moment there is something that is actually bigger than this temporal, earthly status. Like there's something bigger going on here than just the fact that I've been physically healed. There's something bigger going on here than just the fact that I now get to re-enter society and like be a normal person. And this is what many of the Jews were missing. It's possible that it's something that many of us are also missing as well. Look with me real quick at Matthew chapter 7. Flip over there. Take, take just a second. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Here's what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But... The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, meaning the last day, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." So just to distill that down, Jesus says, there are going to be people who call me Lord, but I'm not their Lord. There are going to be those who say that I'm their king, but I'm not their king. Those for whom I am really their Lord are the ones who do what I ask. This is what he's saying here. Not the ones who really do what they want, 
but they do it in my name. So again, Jesus is the king. And the king says that there are those who are going to call me king, but I'm not really their king because their primary loyalty is not to me. Those who actually get to enter my kingdom are the ones who truly worship me as king. And the sign that they truly worship me as king is they are obedient to me. They do what I tell them to do. These are true worshipers. The ones who are truly loyal to the king. So so let's bring this full circle. There are people who are standing in churches this morning with outstretched arms, and yet Jesus isn't their king. They have the posture of worshipers. They have the external appearance of worshipers. They might call him Lord, but he's not really their Lord, and only he knows who's who. Right? We're a terrible judge of that kind of stuff. Only he knows who's who. Later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, he's again talking about the last days. And he says that in the last days, he's going to take everybody and he's going to separate them out. The true worshipers and the untrue worshipers. He says like a shepherd separates sheep and goats. Do you remember what separates the sheep from the goats in this account. Here's what he says. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Sounds like a king, right? Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate out one from another as a a shepherd separates sheep from from goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. So what makes a sheep a sheep is that they have actually served the king. If you recall, the sheep say, when in the world did we ever see you in any of those situations? And Jesus says, if you have done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. So so now I close with this. If you want to be a sheep, you have to ask a key question, and that is, what is the will of God? Right? Because if if a huge part of serving the king is about doing his will... What in the world is his will? Right? What does he want me to do? What does that mean? How do I know if I'm doing the will of God? And here's the thing. I've got really great news for us today. I don't really think this is hard to understand. I don't think this is as challenging as maybe we make it out to be. I think we just have to change our thinking a little bit. Do you guys remember Choose Your Own Adventure books? I used to read these when I was a kid. If, you, if you've never read a choose-your-own-adventure book, um, you read a part of a story, and then you come to a decision point in the story, and it'll present you with two different options. You either need to do this, or you can choose to do this. And whichever one you choose, it tells you the next page you need to turn to. And in many ways, if you choose the right one, you get to continue reading the story. The story goes on and on. You'll eventually get to another decision point, and you make another choice. 
But if you choose the wrong one, the book will end abruptly. And many of us, I think, think about the will of God in this way. Like, it's ambiguous. Like, I don't really know what God wants for me, and so I feel like I'm kind of fumbling around in the dark. Jesus, is this it? Is this it? What is it you want me to do? Um, And I think one of the fallacies that possibly creeps into our mind is that we could somehow mess up God's plan, right? That if I don't make the perfect choice every time, then somehow God's perfect, carefully constructed plan is going to be totally thrown out of whack. As if in order for God's will to actually be carried out, it requires all of us to make the right decision every single time. Sometimes that's how we think about this, which just doesn't make a lot of sense biblically. That in any given situation, I could choose this path or this path, but only one of them is really the right one. Only one of them is really the one God wants. And I think we're maybe overcomplicating this thing a bit. Here's the reality. So we talked about the physical posture of a worshiper in Scripture, but God is far more concerned with the posture of your heart. Right, Because as I said, there are people raising their hands, but he's not really their Lord. There are people who might kneel and say, Lord, Lord, but he's going to go, who are you? He's far more concerned about what's happening here than with what's happening externally. And if you come away from this message and say, man, I have very little hope of entering the kingdom of God because I have no clue what God wants me to do. I don't know know if I'm doing the right thing. Um, I I have to perform perfectly with no mistakes. If all of this is going to work out, I have to serve the king perfectly with no mistakes. If that's what you come away with, then you've not only missed the point, you've missed the gospel. You've missed the gospel. The gospel says that you are unworthy of entering the kingdom of heaven. Because of your sin, because of your selfishness, but God in his grace sent his only son to die so that your inability to be perfectly obedient to him wouldn't prevent you from entering his kingdom. Because that's what was happening before. Before you had no hope, right? Before you were truly in darkness. Before there was no future. It didn't matter if you were making the right decision or the wrong decision. You were separated from him, the scriptures say. And yet he sent his son to die so that your inability to perfectly be obedient to him wouldn't separate you from his kingdom. And here's the thing. If you will give him your faith, if you will seek in your heart to give him your loyalty, guys, it will transform everything. Because he is the one that ultimately transforms the posture of our heart. It's not about us just going, I think I want my heart to be different. It's about him doing a work through his Holy Spirit within you. But yet, we have to repent, as we said. And what did we say repentance was? We said repentance is taking the faith that you have and removing it from whatever else it's actually placed in right now whether it's yourself or your education or your money or your stuff or whatever. It's taking your faith, removing it, and turning it and placing it fully in the person and work of Christ. That's what repentance is. It's not just going, man, I feel bad about this. I feel sorry about this. No, no, no. It's actually action. It's, I'm going to take this. I'm going to put it in Christ. Christ is my hope. That is the thing 
that will transform the posture of your heart. God working within you. The leprosy that Jesus has healed us from is our sin. It's the thing that makes us outcasts. It's the thing that separates us from the normal life of his kingdom. And he's offering this redemption to the whole world. The question is, are you the one who turns back and worships him by giving him everything? Right? Do you hear this good news about what he's done and then just go on with your life, but maybe now saying, hey, he's Lord? Or are you the one that actually gives him everything? Are you the one that actually submits yourself to him as Lord? The parable of the Good Samaritan begins with a lawyer asking Jesus the question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the law, what does it say? And the guy responds with the right answer, which is what's known in Judaism as the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And here's what the Shema teaches. One of the primary ways that you are obedient, one of the primary ways that you love God with everything is by loving your neighbor as yourself. So think of the sheep and the goats, right? When you gave me something to drink, when you saw me in prison, all of these things, and they go, when did we do this? And he says, if you did it to the least of these, you have done it to me. If you really want to be obedient to me, if you really want to show me you love me, that you are subservient to me as your king, then love your neighbor. What is the will of God? Man, I think it is that. I think it is that from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. It's what he wanted for the Jews. Jesus says the whole of the law and the prophets is summed up in that one statement. Love, it's not two things, by the way. It's not love God, oh, and also love people. It's not, oh, feel affection towards God, oh, and feel affection towards other people. No, no, no. It's treat other people in the way that you treat yourself. And in doing so, you are lavishing your love upon the Father. Are you guys following me this morning? I think if we will dedicate ourselves to seeking to love those around us with the love that we have for ourselves, with the love of Christ, if we will ask the question, Father, how can I manifest your glory? How can I show what your kingdom is like? How can I give people a taste of what the gospel is through the way that I treat them and care for them? I think when we start asking questions like that, we're really starting to get into the territory of what it looks like to be a faithful yet unworthy servant of the king of all things. And the irony of all of this is that outside of Christ, you're incapable of doing any of this, right? He's the one who empowers us through his Holy Spirit to do these kinds of things. It's only as he transforms your heart that it becomes possible for you to even do his will. And so where you are this morning, would you bow with me?
the reality is, is there's no one in this room who has been like perfectly loyal to the king. What the scriptures say is that there are none who are righteous, not even one. Not even one. There are people who might appear righteous, but their righteousness is like dirty rags compared to the holiness of the Father. And so because he is seeking people to worship him, just where you are right now, would you just thank him for his goodness, for the love that he has lavished on you and me? Would you take a moment and just praise him? Tell him how incredible he is.